This is a podcast from BFM 89.9, The Business Station. BFM 89.9, The Business Station. Welcome to Matt Splained this morning. My name is Rich Bradbury. Um, it's been a while um, since we got weird with Matt, and I know how weird that in fact sounds. I've had a peek at the notes for today, and I can tell you that if, if you don't like worms and you're not into worms, this might not be the episode for you. I mean, who doesn't like worms? Worms are great. They make the soil lovely. They're wiggly. Uh, when you cut them in half, they become two worms. Um, lots of great things about worms, but... Um, no, we're going to go elsewhere uh, first. So this this first story is from the always uh, reliable motherboard from Vice, uh, and it's that Amazon is back in the antitrust spotlight. So we have this weird love-hate relationship with Amazon. You know, the last couple of months I've been back in the UK, and I just sort of automatically lent into the Amazon ecosystem uh-oh. You know, where I, yeah, well, no, because where I stay over there, it's quite rural. So unless you're prepared to drive or, or take the train to go to some better stores, Amazon is actually the most convenient way to get things. And this is how lazy I got. You know, my, my relatives get through a lot of uh, bottled water. So rather than buy huge quantities and carry it home from the supermarket, I just order it from Amazon and have it delivered. <laughs> So you are having these regular conversations with Alexa, then you're speaking to Alexa. Well, all the time. You know, my mum's house has got one of those echoes with a screen in the kitchen. I don't know what they're called, but you can watch TV shows and videos on it. You can stream the Amazon uh, ring door camera to it. And of course, you can do all the normal things and, you know, asking it questions and it'll reply to you. And oh. I was forever setting timers to remind me when my food was done. Uh, and yes, I'm a cliche. I was eating a lot of the tech nerd classic food, pizza. Um, but, you know, that that's kind of fine for me because I'm so slim. I'm so svelte in real life. You know, a moment on the lips, not on my hips, baby. <laughs> um, for the record, the tub of lard in front of me is blatantly lying. I shouldn't be insulting you live on radio, but here we I are. Know. You make it sound like I'm Jabba the Hutt, you know, grabbing pizza slices out of the air with my tongue. Uh, or maybe that was just one of my dreams. Um, anyway, the uh, the point is that uh, after just a few weeks, I was pretty much dependent on Amazon. Now, um, listeners who, who aren't based in uh, in Malaysia should be aware, Amazon's tentacles haven't actually reached us here in Malaysia yet. So we're not as dependent on the, the system here. So only parts of that ecosystem really function here. So mm. I can totally understand this push-pull thing of being reliant on the company, but also uh, resentful at that dependence and a little bit shocked at the way its employees get treated. Really? Uh, did you speak to any of the drivers who dropped off your essential uh, supplies, like you know water that comes out of a tap in your own house? Well, for the record, uh, I am, for the most part, a tap water drinker. Uh, I don't like the waste of plastic bottles. But honestly, because I add lemon juice to my water anyway, it tastes the same whether it's Evian or out of a cheap home filter. But um, yes, you know, to your point, I would have a quick chat with some of the drivers that came more regularly. 
the number of deliveries that they do in a day is insane. It would be something like 150. Wow. I know. And that's probably doable if you're in like a, a, a metropolitan area and they're all close to each other. But as I said, my family's place is in a village. Uh, one place to the next can be a few kilometers. You know, all of which brings me back to this antitrust suit about Amazon and the news that the Federal Trade Commission is suing the company for allegedly being a monopolist. Really? So they claim that Amazon uses a series of anti-competitive strategies to maintain its monopoly power. And the FTC's chairperson, Lena Khan, has stated that Amazon uses punitive tactics to maintain this position, exploiting its power to benefit itself and then raising prices and reducing service quality for its massive user-based. Really? And it isn't just the FTC. Seven states' attorneys – is it states' attorneys general? No, it's state attorneys general. 17 mm-hmm. state attorneys general have also joined in on the suit. Now, is this like that uh, Microsoft suit from a couple of decades ago, which effectively broke the company into uh, different units, different component parts? No, it doesn't look like an attempt to dismantle the company as such, but it does address what it terms monopolistic behavior towards consumers and third-party retailers, uh, as well as uh, behavior that uses its position to make it harder for the new companies to actually enter the, the same space as Amazon. Well, I mean, Amazon occupies so many spaces. So a lot of the current focus centers on issues of liability. So the complaint claims that Amazon's tactics, uh, things like uh, burying, uh, you know, uh, burying sellers offering lower prices elsewhere in its listings and requiring sellers to to use uh, costly fulfillment services in order to be eligible for uh, prime delivery. Uh, It says that these are uncompetitive actions. So they also accuse Amazon of... um, disrupting competition by degrading search functions with paid ads so that their products get promoted over superior ones from third parties. And again, they then get to charge sellers exorbitant fees to to access those paid promotions. Let, let's be honest, this is not the, the first FTC action we've seen against Amazon. A suit earlier this year took the position that Amazon's prime service was, in fact, manipulative. Yeah. I mean, we're seeing regulators around the world coming down um, more heavily on the practices of tech firms in general. So Google was served with an antitrust suit at the start of this year. Um, We're seeing these things, you know, whether it's anti-competition, we're seeing tax inquiries, we're seeing new labor laws being enacted. It's really a bad time to be a phenomenally wealthy tech company. So the prime suit hinged on the number of steps it takes to cancel uh, your Prime membership once you've subscribed. Uh, there was also a yeah. There was also a suit relating to the security of Ring cameras, uh, and you know Amazon. It turns out is not alone in handing over customers' doorbell and security camera footage to uh, authorities without any kind of warrant. Um, how have they responded to all of this? You know, can I guess or uh, no? Just tell me. Well, they've responded by sending me an ad for pizza. No, I'm, I'm kidding on that one. 
Uh, although my mum's Alexa did serve me with the most middle class suggestion I think I've ever seen while I was there. Oh, it, it's, was. it suggested that I ask it for the opening hours of pret a which is an upmarket British high street sandwich chain. Uh, weird, because the nearest branch of pret a is about 50 kilometers away from where I stay. Um, but anyway, um, David Sapolsky, Amazon's global public policy uh, senior vice president, has argued that the practices under scrutiny have actually spurred competition and innovation. And in that sense, they benefit both consumers and businesses alike. Uh, yeah. And he warns that if the FTC succeeds with this suit, it might uh, lead to uh, fewer product choices on their sites, higher prices, and slow down deliveries. Now, Amazon is gearing up to defend its practices in court, but in today's landscape, you know, I really don't fancy its chances. The, the tech right. giants do seem to be very out of favor with uh, judges and juries of late. Um, and as we touched on uh, cameras and security in this piece, can we do a, a riveting story on Wi-Fi? Um, sure. Yeah, why not? I mean, you, you've done a decent enough story so far. I think you've uh, earned the right to be a little bit boring. I don't know how I'm supposed to take that, so I'm going to pretend that it's a Twitter I comment. And I, it, he's calling you a tub of yeah. lard. Think a little bit better okay, than that. Okay, basically, yeah. So your comments just exist somewhere that I'm not, as far as I'm concerned. So um, this story is uh, from the New Scientist, I believe. Now, some of you may remember something that we covered a few years ago. Uh, I think it was Belgian or French researchers. They created a, a system that could use Wi-Fi to effectively see through walls. Yes, so, we remember. Yes. Yeah. So coupled with a dish that could grab the uh, radio field surrounding your Wi-Fi box, they created an algorithm that actually denoised those signals uh, yeah. and they could show movement. It detected movement um, inside the buildings whenever an object, and uh, when we say object, we mean people. Uh, so it showed whenever objects cut through these radio waves and they managed to turn that information into these pink panther-like stick figures uh, that showed people moving around inside the building without needing any kind of cameras. Yeah, that was definitely one of the creepier stories that we'd covered. Well, this new version gets uh, creepier. So uh, a team from the University of California, Santa Barbara, have created a technique called Wifract, Wifract, I'm really not sure how to, to pronounce it. It's got two apps in it. Um, this deciphers the, the shape of stationary objects behind walls by analyzing their Wi-Fi reflections. So it's a, a bit like echolocation, but for Wi-Fi rather than bats or dolphins. So, Second, if, you, if, if we think of the Matrix movie, when it first starts forming with those green thingies and you start to see the world... Is it like that? Does it look like that? No. I mean, this is this is like old-fashioned sonar and radar. But what they're oh. doing with these old-fashioned sonar and radar, these blips, is actually turning them into 3D images. So basically what happens is when radio waves encounter a, a sharp edge or curve, they diffract into a, a specific pattern. This pattern is called a Keller cone. And when you measure that pattern, you can actually trace it back to its origin. And in doing so, you can identify the object. Now, this is another one of those things where 
Um, the more data the system has, the better it works. You know, yeah. with me, I, I remembering a phone number overwhelms me. But with these systems, the less data you have, the less clear a picture they can give. So with enough of these kelecombs, you can actually start to map out objects in three dimensions. And that is really scary. Oh. And like the original um, Pink Panther example, none of this uses specialized equipment. The team used regular Wi-Fi transmitters and a tower of Wi-Fi receivers on a remote-controlled car to measure these reflections from outside buildings. And they created detailed images of objects, and they could even read 3D text through walls, although I don't think a lot of us have a great deal of 3D text in our homes. I imagine you know it's like sculptures of words or something. Interesting use case. Um, okay, before we flip onto the dark side then, um, I, I, I dread to ask this question, uh, but what are some of the potential um, misuses or uses of this tech? Well, it, it has a lot of potential applications in uh, home security and also in smart home management. So I've been doing some client work on um, Internet of Things devices and environmental monitoring recently. And something like this, you know, it provides an additional rich data stream that you could add to uh, a building management or monitoring system. But yes, even the team itself acknowledges this dark side. You know, the only thing you really need to snoop inside someone's house is basically a dish. So again, this is a bit like artificial intelligence. The technology is already here, but nobody's thought to discuss how and if anybody should be using it. And by the way, if anyone sees me parked outside Richard's house late at night, it's just a really large quali in the back of my car. I, I do these late night cookouts for my friends um, and I just always bring my own walk. In the middle of Bangsa at 4am in the morning. Um, not be the first time I might add. Anyway, uh, a ready meal for two uh, would leave you with uh, plenty to spare, Matt. Um, we'll, we'll take our own walk break here then, shall we? You made me do this, huh? He's terrible, terrible. He makes me read these puns, folks. Anyway, of course, we'll be back in just a few minutes here on Matt Splained on BFM 89.9, The Business Station. Beyond Frivolous Mishmash, BFM 89.9. BFM 89.9, The Business Station. Welcome back to uh, Matt Splained, Walk Splained, Quali Splained. We're talking about Wi-Fi's and all kinds of stuff. Just before the break then, we were exploring, surprisingly, um, and unusually on this show, the dark side of technology. Yeah, and we're going to stay there. So um, let's hey. stick with, uh, yeah, uh, another new scientist story here. And this is about the best places to park on the moon. Now, I know that might not sound important, but, you know, as we know from any trip to the supermarket or the mall, you have to know how to park tactically. And with China, Japan and India joining NASA, European space agencies and Russia in a rush to the moon's surface, knowing where to park and where to set up your tent 
is becoming increasingly important on the lunar landscape. Now, Matt, I know we've we've been friends and colleagues a long time, but are, are we really talking about camping on the moon? Well, physical camping would be tough because everything in the tent would, you know, fly around every time you touched it. But uh, a, a lot of countries are interested in developing permanent or semi-permanent bases mm. on that little rock. So a team from the University of Atacama in Spain thinks that it might have cracked the puzzle of where best to place your base. They've identified an optimal location at the moon's south pole Uh, The area, which spans two craters, offers uh, a unique combination of sunlight and shade. So the sunlight allows you to generate electricity using solar panels, while the shade provides access to ice, which, of course, can be mined for water. So the Spanish team has compiled data on uh, various factors like water ice distribution, the amount of sunlight that each area receives, uh, even things like slope angles of the terrains. Uh, obviously, you know, for building, and even how feasible it would be to establish communication links with Earth from these locations, because, you know, obviously on the dark side of the moon, you can't do that. So their research led them to a five-square-kilometer area, which is uh, between the uh, Sverdrup and Henson craters. Yeah, of course. Um, Oh, you've been there. Um, It's really, yeah. It's relatively flat, making the uh, construction of uh, a lunar habitat possible. It's rich in ice and minerals, uh, especially in those shaded regions. And the uh, consistent sunlight ensures that there will be a sustained and sustainable power generation. Uh, So it's kind of that perfect balance or that ideal balance, if you want, between resource availability and energy sustainability. And what are the, um, <clears throat> I kill myself with my own jokes, potential roadblocks over <laughs> other than parking charges? Well, whoever get, gets to get there first is going to be able to leverage some pretty heroic landing fees. So those Indeed. parking charges could be a, a, you know, a path to uh, wealth for sure. So while the error looks uh, promising, there are still uncertainties. Uh, preliminary data suggests potential challenges with the water supply. So it's uh, crucial for uh, researchers to ensure that the water ice present is actually sufficient for not just uh, consumption as water, but also potential conversion into oxygen and hydrogen for fuel and also for you know the oxygen within the bases. Uh, India's uh, Chandrayaan-3 rovers have been exploring uh, various other cratered areas around the South Pole as well. Well, and NASA's Viper robot, which is uh, set to land on the moon next year, will provide more detailed uh, information about the distribution of these resources, resources like water and carbon dioxide. So if the results are positive, we could be seeing the very first moon mall within our lifetimes. As if we don't have enough. Um, I'm a little bit worried because there's a note in front of me here about worms. We got more worms uh, yeah, so I think most people will have heard this story by now. This is about the Australian woman who was experiencing symptoms oh. like stomach pain, yeah, oh. a cough, yeah. night sweats, um, and this evolved into forgetfulness and depression. Uh, when she had a, a scan on her brain, it showed a lesion in the right frontal lobe. And during a biopsy in Canberra in, uh, well, last year, 2022, 
that a live wriggling worm was actually pulled out of her brain. Richard's looking very, very unwell at the moment. Um, Now, this was thought to be the first instance of uh, a larval invasion and uh, development in the human brain. So I can feel a lot of the listeners wincing as well. So so don't worry. I'm not going to talk about uh, this story any further because we've got even more brain worms to discuss. <laughs> now, I, I've been watching a, a, a TV show recently on HBO, uh, and it's about people um, in the, the Antarctic and uncovering parasites and all of this kind of stuff. This is giving me nightmares already. Oh, I've got that queued up to watch. I'm just watching The Last of Us again, and then I'm going to get to to that one. I'm such a happy soul. I think it's called The Face. Yes. 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 Um, Anyway. Yeah, so scientists in uh, Georgia have confirmed a local presence of a brain-infecting parasite called the the rat lungworm uh, in rodent populations uh, in the state. In fact... They estimate that up to 20% of the brown rat population could be infected. Now, the lungworm, which does appear to be spreading to other locations across uh, the US, is typically spread by rats and snails. Uh, And this is the really good bit. Do you want to know how they develop? No. (laughs) (laughs) Well, you're going to Adult worms reside in the lungs of rats where they reproduce, so the eggs hatch into larvae. These are then coughed up by the rat, swallowed, and eventually excreted. Okay. Uh, snails and slugs come into contact with this contaminated excrement, and then the worms make their way into those creatures. Inside the snails, the larvae mature and become infectious, and then the process repeats when a rat eats an infected snail. Yeah, hang on. But that's not explaining the human infection part unless people are eating snails and rats. And I'm not really aware of that. I mean, people eat snails, yeah, but rats? Uh, oh, I don't know. I don't even want to think about it. Can we just move well, on? <laughs> obviously, we come into contact with uh, the worms and larvae when we go around the world. Uh, but plenty of other species can also act as hosts to the parasite, including fish, frogs, and uh, various crustaceans. Now, as far as I know, there aren't any suggestions that this has entered the uh, the, the food chain. Wow. But um, in humans, pitiful humans, uh, this parasite can lead to an infection called uh, eosinophilic meningitis, where the worms invade our nervous system and brain. Uh, but again, don't worry too much. Human cases are, are still rare, and a lot of the infections are, are mild and they tend to resolve on their own. But in some cases uh, where there are severe infestations, it can lead to permanent uh, neurological damage, potentially even to, to death. Uh, but in reality, it seems that the lungworm might actually pose a greater threat to the local wildlife that it uh, infects than it will to people. Uh, Though, you know, the idea of uh, parasite-controlled alligators in Florida is probably an idea that The uh, Last of Us should explore on their next series. Uh, If they aren't already. Um, But, you know, this brain fixation thing you've got throughout this show hopefully has ended with the worms right now, but you've got this brain fixation in our next story as well. What's going on today? Yeah, um, so we're returning to an old friend of this show, uh, Mr. Elon Musk. Oh. Um, 
And this is about Neuralink. Yeah. Um, Neuralink has just been given the green light for human trials. They've received approval from an independent review board to start recruiting patients for their first human trial. Uh, The study is set to span uh, six years, and it will focus on individuals with paralysis. Uh, The company is targeting patients with uh, paralysis quadriplegia resulting from spinal cord injuries or from ALS. So the idea is to surgically implant a a brain-computer interface, a BCI, uh, using a specialized robot into a, a part of the brain responsible for movement. So... What's the ultimate goal? Um, The goal is to enable these patients to control things like uh, a computer cursor or a keyboard using just their thoughts. Uh, So the study will primarily aim to assess the safety and the functionality of the technology. I already know where this story is going, but um, for those people at home, let's take a bit of a step back and remind um, non-Elon obsessives uh, what Neuralink is. Neuralink is a a company that develops um, a a BCI, which is also called a Neuralink. Now, while brain-computer interfaces are largely uh, experimental, we are seeing medical use cases in the real world and not just the lab. So um, there are, for example, sensor arrays that help people with Parkinson's to gain more motor control. I actually met somebody recently who has one of those devices. while the, the Neuralink itself has the ultimate goal um, of going beyond that medical need, it wants to bridge the gap between humans and intelligence and artificial intelligence in healthy individuals. So this is uh, wholly and entirely uh, a medical study. Uh, and in fact, the Food and Drug Administration initially denied Neuralink's uh, request to expedite these human trials. But in May, um, they granted Neuralink an investigational device exemption, allowing them to move forward with clinical studies, although uh, they haven't actually uh, disclosed how the FDA's initial reservations were addressed by the company. Um, You mentioned six years for the study. Do you have any idea when it might kick off and, and what those results might mean, I guess, in in terms of market readiness? Well, the company hasn't provided details on when and where the trial will take place or the number of participants involved. And even if the devices, you know, prove to be safe in this trial, which I hope they do, it could be decades before they're available in, you know, any other capacity beyond other sanctioned studies. But BCI technology, although it, it sounds you know very odd and sci-fi, it's not quackery. Yeah. Um, you know, it might not become that sci-fi vision of you know computers and human brains that people imagine. You know, like the Borg from Star Trek or, or something like that. But medical intervention uh, interventions based on the evolution of this technology are already transforming people's lives for the better. Um, we're going to stick with AI for the next story, uh, simply because, you know, it's me. Uh, yes. So this is just to say that uh, OpenAI has uh, announced a major update for its uh, chat GPT conversational AI, which is going to be rolled out over the next week or so. 
Uh, they're calling it uh, a multimodal update, and uh, it will allow the already scarily capable machine to process voice conversations and respond to images. Mm. I had a bit of a play with this, actually, uh, but it, it kind of makes it similar to systems like Alexi and Siri, though, right? On the surface, yes. You know, while those assistants can provide information, chat GPT, uh, the AI behind it, it's not a search engine that, yep. you know, just provides third-party results that happen to match a query. It creates tailored, articulated, and context-specific answers to the user's inquiries. So this takes the technology uh, a step further towards, you know, that future of interactivity. Uh, we've mentioned things like input engineers on the show before, an emerging industry of people who specialize in, you know, designing prompts so that IA will actually, uh, AI will actually achieve uh, a client's, uh, you know, needs. So this takes us a step closer towards much more natural interactions with these machines, making it easier, hopefully, to tailor their output to your desired outcome. Okay, so tell me a little bit about the image recognition component. Well, imagine, a, you know, we use things like Google Photo. You know, you take the image and you put it into the search engine and it gives you results based on what you put in there. But imagine uh, a Google Photos image that is truly interactive, that you can send an image to start a query uh, or some kind of generation from the machine and then continue the conversation about that image or about that query with your voice. Really? Now, at the moment, this is only planned for premium accounts. And as you said, you've had a quick play with it yourself. But this is yet another game changer for an already game changing technology. I mean, what, how did you feel trying it? Did you feel that it really was a, a step further? It, it it put an absolute smile on my face. I took a picture of my fridge and asked it what it could, what I could have for dinner. And it, it took some of the images. For, it, it took my eggs. It took some lettuce. It took something else. And it, and it told you pizza. Well, no, it not. It told me how to make a, a fried egg sandwich with you know the stuff on the side. It was very smart. I mean, oh, it's not smart in what it's suggesting, but the tech behind what it's able to suggest just from looking at those components within yeah, that image. And exactly. Then take, it taking was the context from you and coming up with something that's actually useful. Yeah, precisely. I mean, that, that that's ultimately what this technology is is all about. So it's no surprise to learn uh, of the new financial reporting from OpenAI this week. So the company has just announced that uh, a new round of uh, financing has raised $300 million, which puts the company's valuation at uh, an incredible, somewhere that around twenty-seven to twenty-nine billion dollars. I mean, just astronomical. Uh, according to TechCrunch, VC uh, firms like Sequoia Capital, Andreessen Horowitz, Thrive, and uh, K2 Global have uh, all acquired new shares in OpenAI, and this follows uh, a hefty investment from Microsoft uh, earlier this year, which reportedly puts Microsoft's investment in. Uh, OpenAI at something like $10 billion, which is just, you know, unthinkable. Now, well, while giants uh, like Google have launched services like Bard, uh, Meta introduced Llama, uh, all of these competing systems um, to, to go up against ChatGPT, 
OpenAI has this uh, distinct advantage due to its, you know, its singular focus on AI since its inception. And along with those Microsoft collaborations, you know, integrating OpenAI's APIs into its Azure infrastructure, uh, including it in Bing with GPT-4, all of this is combining to solidify OpenAI's lead in the sector. Yes, yes. Uh, do you want a, a final flush before we go? Uh, I'm not entirely sure I, I like where this is going. Uh, yeah, okay. Well, I mean, this is not our, our first toilet bowl rodeo on the show. Oh, okay. Uh, and, and this might be one of my favorite stories for ages and ages. This is an app called Run P, which does just that. It <laughs> tells you when you can run to the loo during a movie. Now, now, I'm like up in, a while ago. It's from the website. Yeah, it's a development of the website into an app. So I'm I'm like a jackrabbit these days. The movie times are getting longer and my bladder is not getting any younger. So <laughs> this service was created, I think, over a decade ago by a North Carolina-based developer named Dan Gardner, but it's now, uh, you know, a kind of a full-service live app. Uh, he came up with the idea during a, a three-hour plus screening of uh, Peter Jackson's King Kong in 2005. Uh, he needed to go to the bathroom, but he didn't want to miss any of the crucial action. I'm not really sure what's crucial in Peter Jackson's King Kong. That's three hours that I wouldn't have spent. But anyway, that, that nagging feeling stayed with him, and he decided to create a solution that tells people when it's actually a good time to go to the bathroom during uh, the movie. So the app lists movies that are currently in theaters, and for each movie, it provides pee time. And when a pee time is, a, yeah, when a pee time is approaching, the app gives users a cue, either a, a line of dialogue or a visual hint uh, that's coming up in the movie, but without giving them any spoilers that would give uh, information away. Uh, it also has alerts for sensitive material, so it does have you know more than one purpose. So it ensures that viewers can um, you know avoid scenes that they might otherwise find distressing. But how about if you have to break the fourth wall and miss some of the action? Well, if you do have to go out at a, an, an unscheduled moment, the app provides a quick summary of what you've missed. Uh, you plus. Yeah, there's a, a built-in timer that actually counts down to the next pee time, so you know how long you've got before you can nip out, uh, and we'll even count down to the end of the movie. Um, but this is probably the, the killer feature for me. Uh, the number of times I've sat there trying to get a signal in the theatre because I've forgotten to research this before I watch a film, the app also tells you if there are post-credit scenes and provides a countdown timer to them as well. So you know that if it's a Marvel movie, you've got to sit there through seven minutes of credits before you get your 22 seconds and something you really couldn't be bothered to see. Is this another AI-generated app? Well, famously, AI doesn't go to the bathroom. So it does oh, all... Reminder. <laughs> it, does, it does seem to be all manually created. Oh. Um Family, friends, uh, and a small network of collaborators provide the basic information by physically watching the films. Uh, in an interview with The Guardian, uh, the founder, Dan Gardner, said he had to watch Christopher Nolan's Inception three times 
uh, before he could generate the the P times. Honestly, I wouldn't wish that on anyone. It's you know it's an okay movie, but once is pretty much enough. Um, and there's even a version of the app uh, in development for the Chinese market because you know obviously the the popularity of a film over there. Um, and Gardner even notes that people use the app while streaming so that they don't have to disturb the folks that they're watching the movies with. Disturb the folks they're watching the movie with? Well, yeah, some people, you know, don't just watch things on their own all the time like well, us. What, what I mean is, you know, they should be grateful that they're getting their access to this. I'm just kidding. Streaming services. Anyway, I'm being a grump today. Matt, thank you very much. A great show today. Apart from thank the one and the, the brain I, that was the bit I enjoyed the most to be perfectly honest good lord okay thank you very much for today's show of course folks if you did miss any part of the show catch Matt uh, wherever you normally catch him I, I suggest you follow him on his socials stalk him over there he's on all the socials at culturematt.com and uh, sorry is that culturematt he's at culturepop uh, culturepop.com and of course do subscribe to his Substack newsletter culturepop.substack.com and of course, if you did miss any part of this show, I recommend you download the podcast wherever you know where to get it from. We recommend the BFM app. That's available in the Apple App Store or Google Play. My name is Rich Bradbury, and this has been Matt Splin here on BFM 89.9. You have been listening to a podcast from BFM 89.9, The Business Station. For more stories of the same kind, download the BFM app.